Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to Episode 9 of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison. I'm a naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And today, we are focusing on the second half or part two of our discussion on ultra-processed food. I have to say, it's been really fascinating digging into this. There's so much opportunity for researchers out there to really dig into some of this stuff. We are going to talk today about a lot of foods that are going to be really problematic, but we need to couch this with the awareness that some ultra-processed foods are not only okay, but are actually life-saving. So think about things like infant formula. That's a necessary and life-saving ultra-processed food that we're not going to include as a problematic food in this world. It's made to support infant nutrition and it saves lives across the world. That's not what we're talking about here. Also, there's some things that are made that are ultra-processed that are used for certain specific consumption reasons like athletic performance. And although I think there's a place for looking at some of those foods and wondering if we can replace them with something that's a bit more whole food based. Folks out there who are riding the Tour de France and need 90 grams of carbohydrates every hour are not going to be able to get that from many things other than some of these ultra-processed foods. And then I also think that protein powders Things that we use to bring protein levels up in patients who have problems with getting enough protein in their diet are less likely to be problematic than foods that we are going to talk about that are hyperpalatable and aren't really made to fit a specific nutritional need. So let's say you have a specific nutritional need, like you're an athlete and you need to meet a certain number of carbohydrate grams per endurance session, or you are a weightlifter and you need to bulk up. And so you're using protein powders to help you achieve that outcome because it's very hard to eat that much protein. That's a different discussion. Same I would say for patients where we know that they're having problems with getting their protein levels or getting their just their basic nutrition levels. This is where I know I personally will lean on things like meal replacement drinks if someone is having a hard time meeting their nutritional needs using whole foods. We know that person needs calories and they need their macronutrients regardless of whether or not it's a whole food. At some point, it becomes really important. And it's not unusual in people who are in a state where it's really hard for them to get the energy to actually even get out of bed and make something to eat that we're encouraging them to use things like Ensure or Boost or other types of ultra-processed foods that are there for nutritional needs. That's really different from the ultra-processed foods that 
are ubiquitous in the standard American diet and standard Canadian diet that are hyper palatable and are really easy to consume excess calories with. Those are the foods that we're more concerned about. Those are the foods that aren't there for any quote unquote good nutritional reason. And we see them as foods that have the risk of pushing out the healthy foods in someone's diet because they are so hyper delicious. They're they're too delicious. And they essentially trick us into thinking they're more important than all these other really healthy foods because we get a much bigger reward from eating them. So as you can tell, digging into this subject got me thinking a lot about more of the subtleties in the gray areas, like everything in life. Everything is gray, shades of gray. And so I wanted to start off just by making that point really clear that we can't vilify everything in any category, and that includes ultra-processed foods. So having said that, today what we're going to talk about is why is ultra-processed food so tasty? Why do we love it so much? I want to talk about how you can identify ultra-processed foods in your cupboards, in your grocery shopping, in your just in your life in general. And we're going to talk about some tools on how to avoid consumption of them. So tools to identify and then tools to avoid or limit your consumption and what might be a reasonable limit to set on ultra-processed foods in general. One of the superpowers of many ultra-processed foods is that they are hyperpalatable. Hyperpalatable foods have specific combinations of fat, sugar, sodium, and carbohydrates that make them really rewarding, what we could call artificially rewarding to eat. And that makes them harder to stop consuming. In fact, people who have hyperpalatable food in a meal will consume more calories than people who are eating meals without hyperpalatable foods. By being hyperpalatable, ultra-processed foods create a reward in our brains that makes them seem really important to our nervous system. Therefore, our nervous system wants to encourage us to eat more and more of those foods. They also tend to be really easy to eat, very convenient, and foods that we can consume pretty quickly and outpace our satiation signals, which means that hyperpalatable, ultra-processed foods tend to be eaten in larger quantities, or at least in larger caloric quantities, than we might eat a whole food like a salad or a bowl of rice and beans. So you might be wondering why are these foods so rewarding to us? Part of the answer is likely based on evolution. So foods that are high in fat or are really sweet or are very salty or really dense in carbohydrates were probably pretty hard to come by when we were evolving several hundred thousand years ago. It would be really hard to come across a, you know, a field of potato chips and just eat like crazy. We needed to have reward systems to help signal to us what foods would be ideal to consume from a survival perspective. And a lot of what survival would mean would be getting enough calories. And because uh, salt is actually in the wild world is actually fairly hard to come upon, 
sodium would be one of these tastes that we would have identified as being an important one to be rewarded for consuming. You may have seen these very famous goats that will climb very dangerous, steep sides of cliffs where there's uh, salt deposits because they have that same internal reward system for sodium because it's so hard to get sodium in the wild. It's generally thought that fat, sodium, sugar, and carbohydrate load are all attached to an evolutionary reward system that was set up in our brains to be sure that we would consume these foods because these foods would convey or confer a survival advantage to us. The food industry, or particularly the fast food or the convenience food industry, figured this out. They figured out that if we combined certain amounts of fat, sugar, sodium, and carbohydrates in a specific formula, we will get this hyper-reward for eating that food. And the thing about hyper-rewards is that they're bigger than ordinary rewards. And whenever our brains get a hyper-reward for something, whether it's potato chips or we can think of things like, um, like drugs of abuse— we get this hyper reward and our brain naturally places whatever we consumed or whatever we were in contact with that gave us that hyper reward as being more important than the things that give us less of a reward. This is a concept that actually has its roots in addiction science and helps to explain why people who are addicted to substances will unfortunately place that substance as more important than other things that we all would agree are really important in life, that if that person wasn't addicted would also agree is really important in life, like getting adequate water and food, taking care of your children. Now, hyperpalatable foods don't create severe behaviors of addiction the way some drugs of abuse do. But what's interesting is that there is some research in the addiction world that is essentially saying that highly processed foods, these hyperpalatable foods, can be considered addictive substances based on established scientific criteria. So it's a bit different from saying that if you love potato chips, you're addicted to potato chips. Don't mean it that way. But what the researchers are finding is that a lot of the criteria that was used to establish that smoking is addictive, if we use that same criteria and look at hyperpalatable food and highly processed hyperpalatable food, we see that it meets the same criteria. So what is the criteria? Well, there's four criteria that have been used to establish the addictive potential of a substance that was grounded first in the research on tobacco. The first criteria is that the substance will cause compulsive use, that it causes a mood-altering effect. That's number two. Three, that it has a way in which the behavior is reinforced. We can say that that's a reward system. And four, that these substances will trigger strong urges or cravings for the human to reconsume the item. 
a paper by Ashley Gerhardt and colleagues published in Addiction last month, April 2023, called Highly Processed Foods Can Be Considered Addictive Substances Based on Established Scientific Criteria. They looked at the growing evidence that there is an addictive quality to these highly processed foods that are hyperpalatable. And what they did was they analyzed the scientific research into the human responses to these foods. They reviewed it and they came to the conclusion that highly processed foods met these four criteria. Essentially, they met the criteria to be labeled as addictive substances using the same standards that we would use for tobacco products. So this gives us a little bit more insight into the why. Why are these foods so hard to stop eating? And why do we just overconsume them when we wanted to just have a little bit and we find ourselves finishing the whole bag? It also, I think, underlines how important it is for the general consumer to understand that these foods are made to make you want them. They're made so that you are going to have a hard time resisting them. And part of the reasons why they are hard to resist is that they send a signal to our brains that signals that tell us something is really high caloric. Hence, we eat a lot of calories when we eat these foods. All of that's really important because we think that some of the reasons why these foods are problematic for humans in general is that they contribute to the excess caloric intake that happens in the Western world now. And that might be one of the reasons why these foods are so harmful is just simply that we overconsume them and therefore we overconsume calories. That overconsumption of calories leads to other knock-on problems like obesity, weight gain, fatty liver, etc. But when we're talking about harms of these foods, we also need to think of other ways in which these foods are, are harmful. I think one of them is that they distract us from eating healthy foods. So if you have a food that our brains are deciding is much more important because it's way more rewarding to eat, we're more likely to seek that food out than something that's healthy for us. And so this has this displacing capacity where it can move us away from eating the more nutrient-dense but less rewarding foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grain, carbohydrates, those types of foods. And those are foods that we know are associated with really good outcomes in terms of cognitive health and likely in terms of mood. So there's an additional problem, which is actual displacement of healthy foods. Writ large, this is a concern about ultra-processed foods and hyperpalatable foods at a public health level, that when you look at societies where these foods have become big parts of the diet, they are pushing out the healthy traditional foods from the population's diet in general writ large. And of course, you can imagine that that has long-term and wide-reaching health impacts. And some of these health impacts are disturbing because these foods are, they're made in a way and they're marketed in a way that really appeals to children. Children are much more vulnerable to the long-term health effects of these foods because if they're consuming them early in life, well, they have a longer time to basically experience the consequences of eating those foods. But also if they establish that this is an eating behavior that 
is normal for them, it's much harder for them to take on a healthy dietary pattern later in life. And of course, these foods, again, are self-reinforcing. So hopefully at this point, you are starting to feel motivated to maybe audit your own intake and consider ways in which you can reduce your intake of these foods, not just for your brain health, not just for your cognitive health into the future, but for your general health overall. And also maybe to fight back against this food industry that's trying to manipulate the population with something that's actually unhealthy. I know I personally don't want to participate in that. And as I mentioned earlier, I I really love potato chips and I'm working on that. (laughs) So looking for tools was interesting. Full disclosure, I have lots of tools that I suggest to patients, but I wanted to review and see if there was any additional ones out there that I wasn't aware of. And so I first thought, well, there must be an app for this. And I started looking at apps. I reviewed three different apps. Honestly, none of them were very good, at least not very good in giving us the NOVA criteria for that food. So telling us where they fit on that four-part criteria scale of how processed this food was or where it sits in the NOVA criteria. I did find one app that I'm going to mention, which was called Open Food Facts. It probably is the best one out there that I could find. And I used it in the grocery store. I went through my pantry and cabinets and I scanned a bunch of stuff. It was pretty good. It did make some mistakes. So there was a pack of almonds that it qualified as Nova food category number two, which is the culinary ingredients. But almonds would be in category one, which would be minimally processed foods because they were just raw almonds. So there were things like that where I found errors in the actual information that I was being given, which I found troubling and would make me not want to suggest this to folks who didn't understand the basic criteria of the Nova Food classification system. So after using this app for a while, I realized A, it's really complicated, and B, it's more than what people really need because it's actually pretty simple to identify these foods if you have some basic knowledge, some practical ways to identify what foods are ultra-processed And you can do that simply by checking the list of ingredients and looking for some specific ingredients that meet certain characteristic criteria. So generally, these will be ingredients that are not used in kitchens or rarely used in kitchens and will be food additives whose function is to make the food either more palatable or more visually appealing or otherwise appealing. So some people would call these cosmetic additives. You can look at a food and start reading the ingredients and fairly quickly it's going to leap out at you that this is a food that it has things that I would never be using in my kitchen added into them or maybe it's the prime ingredient or you see this huge list at the end full of all of these colorings and food flavorings and MSG, that tells you that it's an ultra-processed food as well. With ultra-processed foods, the food substances that are not used in kitchens, so these things that you're not going to find in your pantry, they often appear in the beginning or the middle of the list and will be things like mechanically separated meat or whey protein or hydrolyzed proteins or high fructose corn syrup or 
dextrose or maltodextrin or lactose or interesterified oil. Like these are things that you're not going to reach for your interesterified oil in your pantry when you're about to cook something. So you'll know instinctually because you'll look at the ingredients and you'll think, wow, when's the last time that I put soy protein isolate on my shopping list? And it'll be never, right? So that gives you a clue right there. And once you find one of these ingredients, you know it's ultra processed because it means that it's had to have gone through some type of industrial process in order to exist in this world. So that's one way. Another thing that tells you is, as I mentioned, if there are cosmetic additives or flavoring enhancers that have been added to the food. So these are usually at the end of the ingredient list. If you see one of these, one or more, but even if you see one of these additives, you can put that food into the ultra-processed category. So these could be things like flavors. They can be flavoring that is artificial or flavoring that they call natural flavoring. It can be cosmetic additives like colors, so you know, red dye number X, Y, emulsifiers, emulsifying salts, sweeteners and thickeners like anti-foaming agents or bulking agents, carbonating or gelling or glazing agents. So anything that falls into that category, you usually see them at the end of the ingredient list. And essentially, that tells you that this food is ultra-processed. So that helps us with looking at and establishing, okay, well, what is a ultra-processed food in my pantry? And we know that limiting these is likely a good idea. If we limit how much we eat of these foods, we are limiting some of the problematic effects that this has on our health over time. But how do we do that? These foods are everywhere. They are convenient. They make us want more of them. And in order to kind of fight back against that, you can live in a middle ground. I believe it 100%. You can live in a middle ground where you are being conscious of what you're eating and limiting the exposure. We don't have a marker for what is a safe consumption limit for hyperpalatable and ultra-processed foods. We don't. We can say that we want to limit it. In the NOVA food classification system, they say always prefer the foods that are minimally processed or unprocessed foods. And I think that that's generally the best way to go. But we're going to be in the real world for the rest of our lives. And in the real world, especially in the Western world, we're going to be confronted with the fact that sometimes these foods are in our houses. These foods are available all over the place where we work. And we want to figure out ways in which we can navigate limiting them in our diets. So the first and most important thing is that you listen to this podcast and you now know what an ultra-processed food is, and you also are aware that you as a human being eating this food are going to want to eat more of this food. It's just part of the science. You can't get out of it. It's your nervous system like anybody else's nervous system, and you're going to have a big reward when you eat these foods. So one cardinal rule is to limit the amount of access you have to these foods. And this means if you bring it into your house, do so in limited fashion. So what that might look like is that you don't stock up on huge amounts of potato chips or huge amounts of pop, that instead you might 
have a small amount that you purchase every week on your weekly grocery shopping. Or, and this is how I sometimes advise patients, is that you don't put it on your regular reoccurring shopping list, but instead you force yourself to go out and purchase it. Make it so that you have to take an extra step that is uncomfortable and annoying in order to consume that food. If the food is in your house, you can use some of the same thinking, which is that you store it in a place where you can't see it. And you would store it in a place that is hard to access. So sometimes what I'll suggest to patients is that you put it in that cabinet that's high up in, and I'm speaking as a short person, high up and above the refrigerator or above the stove where you would have to get a stool if you're a short person like me and actually get up and open a cabinet to get to that food. The people that research this do find that there's about a 30% reduction in the consumption of these hyperpalatable foods if they are kept in an inconvenient location to reach them. It also takes them out of the eyesight or the mind sight of the little people in your house. So they're not just able to open a cabinet at their level and easily grab one of these foods. Another thing is essentially trying to avoid the risk times that people have when they tend to eat these foods. So we're more likely to eat these foods and essentially to overeat in general if we are going long stretches of not eating. If we are eating something that's nutritious every three to four hours during the day, so you have good solid meals and maybe some snacks through the day, this will limit the amount of times that you get a signal from your body that's an urgency signal that you need to eat something and you need something that's maybe really high calorie. So you can imagine as soon as you're getting this urgency signal from your brain, your brain also knows that there's those potato chips above the fridge and that's really fast, easy, dense calories and we need it right now because we are in trouble. (laughs) So that's how your brain works. It's going to ask for the thing that it knows will solve the problem in the fastest way possible. If you are keeping yourself well-fed and well-hydrated, that's going to limit the internal signaling that you might get to eat those foods. Another way that you can limit your intake is by limiting the environmental cues to eat these foods. Have you ever noticed that if you go to a party and there's a bowl of M&Ms and a bowl of potato chips out, that there's almost a magnetic attraction to those foods that you are kind of distracted even from the conversation sometimes because you know those foods are there. That's a common experience for a lot of folks out there. And that's because once we see them, we've had this environmental cue that there is this hyperpalatable, highly rewarding substance in the room that we could be consuming. At least at home, if we're going to have the foods that we take a portion out, close the container that the food came in and put it back in that really uh, hard to get to location, we're not leaving it sitting out on the counter to be an environmental cue for us to eat it again or for other people in the household to eat it. Once you see it, you want to eat it, right? I'm going to review those last four points because I think they're really important for limiting your exposure to these foods. One. We want to be educated on what they are. So knowing what to look for in the ingredient list and truly appreciating the power that they have to make us overeat them, that they're designed to trigger 
future cravings as well as be hard to stop eating them. Two, we want to limit the access that we have to them either by avoiding bringing them into the house or by storing them in out-of-the-way and out-of-the-mind or inconvenient to access locations. Three, we want to avoid creating moments where our body might demand a high-energy food by ensuring that we eat regular healthy meals or snacks and stay really well hydrated. And four, we want to limit the environmental triggers, the visual triggers, by using things like portion control and avoiding leaving these foods within eyesight. Now, before we wrap up for today, I want to leave you with something pretty hopeful. Remember that study on cognitive decline, the Brazilian study that established that folks who were eating more than 20% of their total caloric consumption as ultra-processed foods were having 28% faster rates of global cognitive decline and 25% faster rates of executive function decline compared to those who were eating in the lowest quartile. The lowest quartile was under 20%. So it was actually a combination of the top three quartiles that were having that more aggressive loss of cognitive capacity. That's not the hopeful thing, though. The hopeful thing was that when the researchers started looking at what would modify this effect, one of the things they found was that this effect disappeared if the people were eating the ultra-processed foods in the context of what they called a healthy diet. The problem is, with this information, is that they don't define in the study and anywhere else that I could find what specifically they were using to determine whether or not someone was eating a healthy diet or an unhealthy diet. So I can't tell you what the diet was or what the parameters of that diet was. I can't tell you how many fruits and vegetables they were eating or other things that could give you some guidance on how to do some protective background eating if you're going to have ultra-processed foods. I think it's probably really safe to state that that background healthy diet was probably based on whole foods. And knowing that this is a Brazilian study, we know that certainly their public health system has been encouraging people cooking their own meals and going back to eating more traditionally prepared meals. And that presumption would be reinforced by other literature we've discussed on this podcast that Mediterranean diet style eating or eating a large amount of fruits and vegetables in your diet and basing your diet on whole foods is good for your brain and good for your cognition and good for your mental health. So I think we can make at least a general presumption that that's probably a similar way of thinking about the healthy background diet that the researchers in this study were thinking of as well. And something that I'm looking forward to in an upcoming episode is discussing with you something called the MIND diet. The MIND diet is one of the better research diets for eating to preserve cognitive function or eating to prevent neurocognitive decline. So we're going to get into something in a future episode, probably in the next one to two months, that is addressing 
how you might start to approach eating as that background healthy diet. So stay tuned, stay tuned, because we're going to cover that. I'm really looking forward to doing it because it is something that I highly value is encouraging people to eat in this way. I think it's got some of the best data to support it for mental health and for neurological health. And there you have it, folks. That is episode nine of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm so glad you listened to the end, and I really appreciate you being here. Please remember that if you're enjoying these podcasts, to leave a review. A positive review goes a long ways in encouraging other people to also learn about their brain health and learn about how to take care of their most precious organ, their brains. See you next time on The Well-Nurtured Brain. We are back in two weeks. And please remember, be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening. 